Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Do you sometimes get tired of flicking through magazines, jumping over adverts and looking for something to actually read? Or are you sick of superficial articles that teach you nothing and just skim the surface of the topic? Perhaps you're looking for a really good fireside read that will stimulate your mind instead of emptying your wallet and leaving you with a hollow feeling. Today's review is on Mortis and Tenon magazine, issue number 6 to be specific, and I'm sure that if you haven't yet ordered a copy of the magazine, you're in for a real treat. But first I have a few updates, and there are quite a few today, so if you're getting tired of these ramblings, just skip ahead to around the 8 minute mark, where the review of the magazine proper starts. Firstly, thank you to Robert Wentworth for signing up as a new Patreon. I always appreciate the support. And Robert, you mark an interesting milestone for me, because I now have two Patreons with the same first name. So I guess in future when I read out the list, I'll be adding surnames in some places, as a way of distinguishing or at least calling out Robert W. and Robert B. It's a first for me, and it made me smile. I'm always gratified by the support I receive, both financial and also just the encouragement for the show that many of you send in via emails. As I'm beginning the second series, I reflected back on the last year, and it's been quite an incredible journey for me. When I started the show in December, I was motivated primarily because I couldn't find a podcast like this. I was hoping to get listeners over time, and for the first few episodes, the idea that I would get 20 listens to a show seemed far away. Forget about 50 or 100. Sometimes, I was so excited I checked a couple of times a day to see if anyone had found the show. Usually the listen count hadn't moved. Now, I regularly get a thousand listens a week, and my top three reviews, the Anarchist Toolchest, Hands Employed Aright, and the Anarchist Workbench, are all sneaking up on the 1,000 listen marks individually. It's really gratifying to me. I'm glad there's an audience that enjoys the content. I know that for some of you listening, you probably can't wait the week between episodes and want more. I promise you I'm doing what I can to get episodes out as fast as I can, but I thought I'd give a shout out to a few other podcasts that I think you might like listening to. Wood Talk is probably the gold standard of woodworking podcasts. And if you haven't listened to Shannon, Matt and Mark, I'd suggest you give this a go. There's some great banter and a blend of topics from hand tools to power tools, techniques to projects to reviews and observations, and the occasional mention of knitting. With over 400 episodes, this podcast has been running for a decade, and I'd suggest jumping in right at the beginning. A spin-off show is Shannon's Lumber Industry Update, which began as a feature and morphed into its own show over time. It's focused on the technical properties of wood, terminology, and what is going on in the world of wood. If you've ever wondered whether you should build a solar kiln in your back garden, or wondered what the MOR thing is that everyone's talking about, this is the podcast for you. Bob Rosieski's Hand Tools and Techniques is focused solely on the use of hand tools, and I think you'll learn something about the craft with each episode. Bob is a passionate and well-informed historical craftsman So if you're wondering how to use that molding plane, this is the show for you. 
Sadly, after about 50 episodes, this podcast terminated. But the content that has been released is phenomenal. And Bob is releasing the occasional extra show, which were historically Patreon extra podcasts. Modern Woodworkers Association podcast has hundreds of podcasts focused on conversations with established woodworkers, and it's a good way of gaining some insights and some tips. If you want to get a feel for this, grab an episode where you recognize the person they're interviewing and see if you enjoy the conversational interview format. After that, you can always go back to the beginning and meet some people you might be unfamiliar with. I really enjoyed talking to Gary Rogowski. It remains one of my favorite interviews. The author of Handmade, Creative Focus in the Age of Distraction, also has a podcast. He shares some great anecdotes and stories, and I find that while these are enjoyable purely at the narrative level, there's a deeper meaning in each episode that will give you something to ponder as you learn to be gentle with yourself in the workshop. The podcast is called Splinters. I think we can all empathize with where the title came from. My current favorite podcast, one that I'm binge listening to at the moment because I only came across it recently, is Cut the Craft with Amy Unbill and Brian Beidler. Amy's name might ring a bell as she was the author of A Sense of Place in Mortis and Tenor number 8. What Brian and her are achieving with this podcast is to get me interested in craft in the wider sense. There are a lot of parallels and lessons from listening to episodes with calligraphers and basket makers. But don't worry, you'll find chair making and green woodworking in there as well. Hopefully this will help fill up your podcast library. But if you've got a favorite podcast that I missed, or any other suggestions, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. I know over the past few weeks there's been a lot of focus on the anarchist's workbench, at the detriment of other reviews. I'm happy to report back that I've recorded a few episodes in advance and though they're not completely edited, the bulk of the reading is complete. Consequently, I think it's going to be possible to release two episodes a week in October. Hey, think of it as Anarchists October. At that pace, we'll be back to three reviews a month in November, or thereabouts. And in the background, I'll be doing some interesting interviews. Expect to hear from Nancy Hiller, Zach Dillinger, Matt Bickford, before the end of the year. I think that's one of the best things about doing this podcast. I really get to talk to all the woodworking rock stars. And one final thing I'm working on. You may have heard of John Ruskin, usually in the context of Morris and Ruskin when the craft movement is discussed. Well, given the great response to the reading of the Anarchist Workbench, I'm planning on doing a narration of Unto This Last, which is a seminal set of essays, a set of letters so controversial at the time that the publisher stopped halfway through. There are some important concepts in his writing, and I think they have relevance to all of us. I haven't quite made up my mind if this will be a full word-for-word reading, or if I'll put out an abridged version with my favourite sections. Or both. Whichever way this ends up, I'm definitely going to put together enough so that you can listen to his key concepts and get a feel for his ideas. I think he's as relevant and important now as he was a hundred years ago. If this works well, I'll be taking this concept further in 2021 with some other key figures in historical craft and woodworking. Anyway, that's one heck of an update, so let's jump into today's book, Mortis and Tenon Magazine, number 6. So why a magazine? Well, I guess in many ways I'll just call it a book, right from the start. 
the magazines in the region of 140 pages, and with the exception of three pages at the back of the book, where they highlight a few suppliers and companies they like and endorse. There are no adverts. The magazine paper quality and printing is sublime, and if you imagine a coffee table book, but a little bit more matte and a little bit less glossy, you're not far wrong. This is a magazine that will grace your bookshelf, not literate. So why am I starting at number six? It's a good question. By way of an answer, I'll talk about a German word that I love, Urwurm, which translates as earworm, and is often used to describe a catchy tune or song you just can't get out of your brain. Mortis and Tenor number six has an article in it, The Radical Efficiency of Green Woodworking, by Michael Aptograph. And for me, this article is not only an important treatise on the topic, but for all intensive purposes, it's a woodworking hand tool Urwurm. Looking at this article in a bit more depth is what I want to focus on in today's show, because I've reread this article a number of times, and I think it serves as a perfect way of discussing what the magazine is about. Issue 6 has 10 articles and a two-page book review. How can you not like a magazine that reviews woodworking books? But I digress. If you do the math, you'll see that each article averages around a dozen pages. Some are longer, but none are superficial, regardless of the page count. Mike's article is 18 pages long. Hey, there's even a quarter of a page at the end for sources and endnotes. So it's not your usual two-pager on how to use a router to cut Christmas presents. The whole magazine is full color, so if you see a picture in black and white, it's for historical reasons or for effect. The pages are printed on number 70 Finch-Opaque uncoated paper, and it's made at Royal Printing in Wisconsin. Even the typeface supports the ethos of the magazine, and it's a deliberate choice. Read the back page and discover why you can expect nothing but to be left in optical ease while you pursue your reading. And because a magazine is not just one article, let's take a quick look at the caliber of contributors for the magazine. Steve Voigt, the Pennsylvania plane maker. Nathaniel Brewster, woodworking historian. David Lane, a woodworker, a former librarian, whose woodwork is show quality. Jim McConnell, editor and self-confessed chronic tinkerer. Brock Job, professor of American decorative arts, author of seven books, and board member of the Old Sturbridge Village. Wilbur Pan of the Giant Cypress blog, and Arsenois Hill, blacksmith and woodcarver. Joshua Klein is the editor-in-chief and is a passionate, and famous I'd say, evangelist of period-accurate hand-tool-only furniture making. His articles often venture into what I'd call experimental archaeology, and his book Hands Employed a Right is right up there amongst my favorite books. Admittedly, so is another work as possible, his most recent book, and I promise I'll get round to reviewing that properly on the show sometime soon. That's a book that's been sitting on the to-do list for way too long. So what are the other articles about, you ask? Well, we start with a feature on Yogg Sundquist, and while I could paraphrase it, I think Joshua Klein's opening editorial sums up the themes of the articles nicely, so I'm going to read it, because he's far more eloquent than I am. Woodworkers are uniquely positioned in 21st century society. Though we may be participants in all that modern technology offers us, our time in the shop seems to be something from another world. 
Today, even the simple practice of making something with our own two hands is often cast as quaint, possibly even regressive. But modernity has no monopoly on insight. Many of us spend our entire workday sitting down while staring at computer screens. Our backs are incessantly sore, our wrists seize up, and our stress levels are through the roof. The belief that the information era has liberated the worker from the drudgery of manual labor is at best an overstatement. Just ask your chiropractor. We were not designed to be sedentary creatures. To compensate for our professional inactivity, many of us go for a run or hike to get our blood flowing again. The reason leisure time in modern urban life is often a retreat into nature for physical activity is because we all know it's good for us to sweat once in a while. During our visit, Jörg Sundquist told us, Sloyd Craft makes my body strong, gives me a strong back and muscles. Sloyd contains a rich diet for both body and mind. Also, I'm able to repair things when they break. That's why I think of it as a survival kit. In a society where we're trying to be sustainable and live more simply, craft can be part of the restoration. This idea that craft work can provide a sense of wholeness, Self-reliance and joy pervades this issue. Between Mike Updegraff's look at the radical efficiency of sourcing your own lumber, my own exploration into making your own wooden brace, and the connections David Lane draws between William Morris's and George Nakashima's emphasis on craftsmanship over the machine, the theme of independence and artisanal competence resound. Even the whimsy of the Windsor chair in Nathaniel Brewster's article, The Pennsylvania Cupboard Photo Examination, and Jim McConnell's own expression from this tradition, all point to the individuality of the maker and the joy of making, heedless of cultural convention. This issue brings together so many interesting threads that are never envisaged woven together. As we dug into our author's work, Mike commented that he has never before been so struck by the immediate and future relevance of this craft tradition. We hope Issue 6 broadens your perspective on working wood in the 21st century, even as it has for us. Keep making shavings, Joshua A. Klein, Editor. So into the meat of the magazine. We start with an interview with a proponent of Sloyd and Green Woodworking, and I think that the Sundquist name is almost synonymous with this, in a similar manner to Langsner. It's a question and response format that helps get a better understanding of Jörg's motivations. There's also a toolmaker's investigative historical account of a double-iron plane, which shares some interesting history and observations about cap irons from a master plane maker. If you've ever wondered why there's a cap iron and how it developed, this is a good place to start. It's also not the only tool article in the magazine, as later on there's an interesting article on forging plane blades from both Eastern and Western traditions. What I thought was cool about this article is unlike typical us-versus-them discussions that focus on why my favourite invalidates what you like. Here the focus is instead on the common ancestry of Japanese and Western edge tools. Forge welding history might not be the first thing you rush out and Google on a whim, but I enjoyed the blend of science, history and philosophy. Joshua Klein also contributes an excellent article on how he went about making a wooden brace for the 21st century. From history, to theory, to actual construction techniques, you can follow his journey through the pages. And by the end, 
the lavish illustrations might just tempt you to go out and pour your own pewter. Don't say you weren't warned. Like many of the articles in M&T, you might find yourself well down a rabbit hole before you knew you were even in it. There's an investigation of a Windsor chair in the home of a collector in Massachusetts. It's detailed and far more comprehensive in analysis than your everyday Windsor chair article. I suggest you'll enjoy the story as much as the pictures of this special chair. Brock's article about the cabinet maker's shop and the plans to build a shop at the old Sturbridge village puts quite a unique spin on recreating a shop. It discusses some of the problems and considerations in recreating a meaningful display, and I enjoyed the way the author humanizes this process. By the end of the article, I felt I knew Mr. Money Gripe and the young Enos White, a woodworker from a different time, going about his work and daily struggles. One article which straddles inspiration, photography and measurements is the examination of an 1804 painted cupboard. This kind of article, which you'll find as a hallmark of M&T issues, is the kind of pictographical investigation that you'll definitely be returning to in the future, for inspiration or perhaps to answer your questions about how to construct something similar. But for me, perhaps the biggest surprise in this issue was the painted chest in the Pennsylvania German tradition, an article by Jim McConnell. This is a style that has never had any real resonance with me. And yet, as I progress through the article, appreciating the story about the piece, and appreciating the clear photography of details, I couldn't help but wonder if I could make one of these myself. The article's a lot more than just stories. In the latter section, Jim takes you through the steps needed, illustrating the phases, and will give you a good primer on how to go about designing your own motifs. The last picture of his daughter, with his reimagined version, showed how this form could be brought into a contemporary home. It's the past examined, understood, and reimagined for today. And I loved reading this article. The book reviews of Suetsu Yanagi's Unknown Craftsman. It's a fitting end to the book, and it ties in nicely with the rest of the magazine. It's a good review, and I can't fault the choice of the book or the quality of the review. But in this case, I'm somewhat hesitant to endorse the recommendation. I really struggled with that book. It's a book that has been referenced by many exceptionally talented craftspeople. There's a good chance the problem lies with me, not the book. I think I need to work on cultivating a slightly deeper personality. And while we're going through the contents, I'll highlight the article called William Morris and George Nakashima. Remember the Ruskin I mentioned earlier? You'll find a passing reference to him in this article, alongside William Morris and Suetsu Yonagi. Just saying. But let's return now to the article I wanted to unpack in today's show. Michael Aptograph's article is called The Tale of Two Trees, The Radical Efficiency of Green Woodworking. The front page spread sets the scene with two gorgeous full-colour photos, one of a natural scene, one of Mike splitting a log with glutes out in the wild. In the 20-odd pages of the article, there are 20 or so evocative pictures. Some, like the ones of the splitting process, complement the text by helping you visualise the process. Others, like the reprint from Woodworking in Estonia or the early picture of St. Roy, help you place the text in historical or social context. Some are simply fantastic artistic shots. Wendell Berry and Walter Rose quotes accompany some of the pictures and give interesting sidebar thoughts to the text. 
but the main text is important. Mike starts with the importance of trees to humanity. That's undeniable. However, the increasing distance from modern man to primary sources is the starting point of the problem he poses near the beginning of the article. Modern technology excels at distancing us from the source of basic necessities. And this link with making and proximity to the natural world drives a different kind of thinking. And while back-to-the-land thinking or ultra-modern distance might not be the solution, Mike's tale of two ways to process a tree got me thinking. Lumber, killed, dried and processed is an essential starting point for much of what I do as a woodworker. And yet the alternate, a sweatier, sunburned Ray, who did his best to harvest his own tree when the corkover fell over in a storm, was also a happy Ray. Mike does some analysis and postulates some thoughts in using simple tools. There's no denying that a simple tool, used at source, and processing where the tree fell, results in a multitude of benefits to the world. Think about the energy consumption to fell, dry, produce, transport, and machine a piece of wood. Compare that to a bowl you've produced at home from a local lumber, and in my case local is the backyard. What's the cost to the planet of store-bought versus local? Even to a lesser extent, I know it's affordable, but is European steamed beach shipped all the way down to South Africa where my values lie, versus some local timber in a forest close to my home? I'm not perfect on this obviously, but particularly for smaller work like my lathe work, Mike's article pointed me in the direction of finding local, harvesting and dealing with some wastage, versus the real wastage and inefficiency of purchasing perfectly processed and often imported lathe blanks. In my experience, splitting a log with a wedge is not hard. Admittedly, I'd suggest you try and bite off smaller logs to begin with. The first monster I processed was a hard morning's work. But small logs in your locality split easily, leave biodegradable waste, and take very little effort with simple tools compared to the alternate processing of this lumber. That's the best I can do to explain the radical efficiency at the heart of the article with a personal example. Although to be sure, Mike is far more eloquent than I am, and he makes a better case of tracing the golden thread of this argument. Some of the elements in this article include stepping away from the quaint romanticism of hand tools and just looking at how efficient they really are. How to use the grain as your friend, both for splitting the wood, but also in the final pieces where a tree's natural shape can be used to your advantage. One snippet I enjoyed was a note that getting the hardwood planks from a retailer can be a hundred times the cost of getting the material from unseasoned logs. It's quite something to think about that. Mike also covers taking the workshop into the woods, doing primary or even final processing in nature where the wood is found. While you might not want to be a bodger from High Wycombe, the practicality of carrying an axe, a splitting maul, or even a draw knife into the forest is undeniable. Vernacular woodworking has always touched a soft spot in my heart. I think after reading this article and considering the concepts Mike raised, your perception of a draw knife, a fro, an axe or a glute might be a little more grounded in the most efficient way of doing the job. I think there's a lot we lost in the transition to industrialization. Unlike many forms of technology, what was lost was not always lost because it had been supplanted by a better technology. One final thought. If you've ever riven a three-foot-long piece of straight-grained oak, 
compare the two or three strikes on a fro with the pain of doing the same task on an underpowered bandsaw. The article will help you look at things like this in new ways. So how do you go about rating a magazine against books? Quite an interesting question, but I'm going to sidestep it completely and simply end with this observation. Mortis and Tenon is to me the gold standard for woodworking magazines in the world. In its own way it shows that another way is possible. Magazines don't have to be acquired by increasingly larger publishing houses to be filled with ads and regurgitated rubbish until such time as they go out of business or are acquired by someone even bigger. It shows me that if you focus on excellence and produce a quality product, you'll be rewarded in the market. The magazine has gone from success to success and I expect no difference in the future. If we live in the golden age of hand tool woodworking, publishers like Mortis and Tenon and our friends at Lost Art Press are a shining beacon of how to do things right. At the price, which is currently in the region of $25, the magazine is not cheap per issue. But I firmly believe it's worth it. I've bought every one, and I've had to add on about $12 an issue for shipping to South Africa. Okay, enough. I know I'm sounding like a fanboy here. Which, to be fair, I probably am. So that's it for now, Woodworms. Treat yourself and go buy a quality magazine, and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest, or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured on a future episode, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can always find me on Patreon, and your contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes.